Okay, then we'll spend the rest of our time with Gideon in the book of Judges. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 32. The living words of the living God. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Our sovereign Lord, as we look at your work toward your people, through your flawed servant Gideon tonight, would you amaze us once again of your amazing grace and the richness that is ours in our treasure of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we continue our series of gospel gems or the gospel in the Old Testament, we find ourselves tonight to the book of Judges and the story of Gideon, a story that you probably all know, starting with some of the first flannel graphs you ever saw as a child. This has been a great study so far and As we've seen, that great list of heroes from the book of Hebrews, the first mention is of Gideon, whom the Lord, as we will see, calls a mighty man of valor. The story of Gideon is found in Judges chapters 6 through 8, and you might want to turn there. So tonight, our goals are very simple. We're going to just familiarize ourselves again with the story of Gideon. And secondly, we'll look at just a few hidden gems in the text and their personal application to us. But before we do that, let's just take a minute to talk about this unique portion and history of God's people that is called the time of the judges. First, if you've never read the book of Judges, I urge you to put aside just a little over a half hour this week, sometime, and turn to the book of Judges and read it completely through. You'll find that it is a remarkable book. It has things that you would never, A, think was in the Bible, B, be shocked that they're in the Bible, And then you'll find yourself at the very end in chapter 21, just kind of saying, wow, where do we go from here? The book of Judges is found right after the book of Joshua in our Old Testament, the exact place it is in the Hebrew scriptures as well. The time of Judges begins after the occupation of the children of Israel into the promised land uh, and the death of Joshua 
and lasts until the kingdom of Israel is established with Saul, followed by David and Solomon. It covers some 350 years. The writer of the book is anonymous. We don't know who he is, but we know a couple of things about him by hints that he gives us in the text. For example, uh, we know that he had, must have written this at the time, probably of David, one of the kings, um, because he speaks with clear understanding of both the history of Israel up until the time of kings and the laws that were set forth for the occupation of the land in the book of Deuteronomy. The book is called Judges. Now, students, if you think of a judge, what do you think of? Well, the first thing you'll probably think of, wouldn't you, is a courtroom. Then you'd think of a man, probably an elder man in robes, or maybe an elder woman in robes, a gavel, and the pronouncement of guilty or innocent in a courtroom. But in fact, that is not the role of the biblical judges at all. There are six major judges in the book of Judges and some minor judges. They were not political. They were not necessarily spiritual. They were not voted on. They were not man-made, nor were they man-appointed. They had various terms of service and differing lengths of time of the service, and they seemed to show up randomly over that 350-year period without any seeming logic. This week, I was in Africa, and I met a man whom I hope you will all meet. He goes by five names. He's a student at the seminary, and we'll just call him Mandy because that's one of his names. This man is an... To say that this man is an expert in biblical languages is is putting it very, very softly. His goal is to get a PhD, and there's only one place he wants to study, and that's the University of Jerusalem, and there's only one man he wants to study on, and it's a rabbi that I'd never heard of. He has all 2,000 root words in Hebrew memorized and is soon working on all 8,000 words. I asked him, Mandy, what are you going to do when you're finished with all of those words? And whenever he would tell me, he'd always start with, ah, Pastor Mark. And he says, ah, Pastor Mark, after I do that, I will start on one, I haven't decided yet, but one of two lexicons, and I will memorize that. I thought, wow. But we got talking, and I said, I'm preparing a message on the the book of Judges. And I said, you know, Mandy, the the Greek word for, or the Hebrew word for, for judge is sophat. Ah, Pastor Mark, you must learn to pronounce. <laughs> the word is sofatim. Thank you, Mandy. I appreciate that. I said, but it still means judge. And that's not what those biblical judges. Ah, Pastor Mark. He said, told me the name of a lexicon. He goes, you need to read down about the fifth or sixth meaning. And you'll find judge of nations, a deliverer. That is your key. <laughs> I said, thank you, Mandy. <laughs> This guy's amazing. You'll hear more about him. But that's what they were. They all had the same purpose. God raised up these judges to protect and to save his people and conquer their enemies. 
Think of them as generals in the army. One commentator calls them warlords, a very apropos title. The reason I encourage you to read the entire book in one sitting is it's laid out like any good book that you'd read, any novel. There's 21 chapters, and it starts out in chapter one with the history of where we've gotten. Chapter two, it basically says, this is what you're going to read in the next portions of the book and gives the cycle that is repeated over the book. And then chapters three through 16, you see the stories of the six main judges of Israel. Starts out with Othniel, then Ehud, and then Deborah and Barak. And then we see our text today, chapter six is Gideon, followed by Jephthah, and finally Samson that we'll see next week. And then the final ending of the book, chapters 17 through 21, is simply an explanation of where the nation of Israel ends up before the kingdom, and it is just shocking what you'll read in there, including chapter 21, which may be one of the saddest and most difficult-to-read chapters in the entire Bible. The book leaves us as low as God, God's people, both then and now, could ever be in total idolatry, with every man doing what was right in his own eyes. And that right is not holy and good. It's what he wanted to do. The same place, I might add, we all were before we came to Christ and where you may be today without the lordship of Jesus Christ. As mentioned in chapter 2, the author gives us a preview of what we'll see in this book, and it's a cycle And it's a cycle downward that's repeated through all of the major judges. The cycle begins with God's people doing what's right in their own eyes and going away and serving false gods. God's anger is kindled against the people, and he sends the enemies of Israel to conquer and oppress them. They eventually cry out to the Lord, and that's the actual word. They cried out, not necessarily repented. We see a repentance only once in the book in chapter 10. But it's a crying out of deliver us. And then God sends a judge to deliver them. The judge then dies and the cycle repeats. And it's a spiral downward to chapter 21. With that as a background, let's turn to Judges 6 and the story of Gideon. Verse 1, keeping to the form of the cycle, it reads, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And as we see, the oppression came, and the oppression, kids, is exactly what you, what you have already seen if you saw what is my favorite uh, Disney Pixar movie, A Bug's Life. If you've seen The Bug's Life, and I say grasshoppers, you'll know exactly what happened to Gideon. Do you remember that they would gather all of the food, and what the grasshoppers would come in and just take it all? That's exactly what happens. Look at verse 4 in the text, talking about the Midianites. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no substance in Israel, and no sheep or oxen or donkey. 
For they would come with their livestock and their tents. And look, they would come like locusts in number. And here we find Gideon, the first time in verse 11. And what's he doing? He's beating out wheat in a wine press hiding from the Midianites. Thrashing wheat needed to be thrown in the air. But, but Gideon was afraid that the Midianites might see that and come down, so he is inside a wine press trying to thrash wheat. Now, if you come away with nothing else from this sermon, I mean, tune me out, get this, and you've got something. You are not the hero of the Bible. Any story... You never were, and you never will be. Let's pray. (laughs) But if you look at any, and go online, I challenge you, and look at any number of sermons about Gideon, you see titles like these actual titles. Gideon blew his horn, you blow yours. Or be one of the 300, watch out for the enemy. Or my favorite, squeeze your fleece. On and on and on with us being somehow put in the story as a hero. Yet, look at the next verse after we meet Gideon and let's follow the story. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Verse 15. And he said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And now comes the signs that we're all familiar with, with the the book of Gideon. The first is the sign of the fire. And Gideon puts this meal down before the Lord. And the Lord himself takes a staff and he strikes that offering. And unlike Elijah, where the fire came down from heaven and destroyed the sacrifice, With Gideon, the fire explodes from underneath and devours the the sacrifice. And Gideon is afraid for his life. Look at verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord seeing him says to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear you shall not die. 
So Gideon now becomes the man of valor. Not so fast. The Lord tells us, uh, the Lord tells Gideon to take two of his father's bulls and go outside and tear down the the shrine to Baal and Ashtaroth and to build an altar of sacrifices for Yahweh, which he does. And now knowing the Lord is with him, he now becomes the man of valor. Not so fast. Then the first fleece in the wine press. You all know the story. Gideon says, if you're, if you're really the one, Lord, I'm going to put this fleece in that wine press I was just working at. And when I wake up in the morning, if you are God, make the fleece wet and nothing around it wet with dew. And he gets up in the morning and he goes to the fleece. And the Bible says that he squeezes out a complete bowl of water and it's completely dried up of water in the wine press. Now Gideon will be the mighty man of valor, not so fast. Lord, I need you to do it again, verse 39. Just once more, he says. This time, water everywhere except the fleece. And we can almost feel the Lord say, seriously, okay. And he does it. Now we have the mighty man of valor, not so fast. To chapter 7. The mighty man of valor is born. This is the story of Gideon we know from our flannel graph Sunday school. He gathers 32,000 men to come, across, to come up against the Midianites. He gather, gathers them for battle in chapter 7, verse 2. <clears throat> the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into, into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So the first cut is made. The Lord tells Gideon to say, Every, anyone who is fearing and trembling, go home. And the 32,000 men shrink to only 10,000 men as 22,000 men go home. The Lord then says, still too many for me to get the glory. And he pairs them down, having Gideon watch them drink at the river. And here's where we again uh, depart from most Big Eva sermons. Because you'll hear sermons and you'll hear illustrations like this. It was only the men who were watching out for the enemy that stooped down and gathered the water to drink like this, not realizing what it would be like having 10,000 men uh, around a river with the enemy miles away. The truth of that is that the men get no glory and no punishment. This was just a way for the Lord to pare this down some more and nothing more than that. He pairs them down, and there are 300 men left who the Bible says did not kneel down to drink. But oh, how we want to be the hero of the story so badly. 
And here's the truth. As the Lord said, I will show you how to get this number down to size. And now you'll know that only I could have done what I'm about to do. And that's how the Lord works. And that's how the Lord works in all of our lives. So I was preparing for this. I read several commentaries, and I think my favorite Old Testament commentator told a story here and basically said that there comes a time in every Christian's life when he understands his salvation and knows that only the Lord could have done this. And he told the story of a British steamship called the Flixton. I don't know if any of you have heard this story. It was 1918, and the British U-boats had already sunk the Lusitania, sending the world into a tailspin in World War I. And there was a British steamship called the Flixton that was uh, circling the harbor looking for enemy, the enemy. And back then, the U-boat was unchallenged. And what they would do is they would fire a torpedo at the enemy ship. And because they couldn't do anything, there wasn't the technology, the U-boats would actually come out of the water. And the men would come around because it took three to five minutes for that slow-moving uh, torpedo to hit its target. So it would submer a come up, and all the men would stand watching the glory of their enemy ship blown to bits as this technology the Germans had was changing the face of the world. Well, the story of the Flixton that day is the, the man up watch at the top of this slow-moving steamship saw in the distance a white line heading toward them and said, Torpedo! Torpedo! And all of the men gathered knowing that there was nothing they could do except stand at the deck of the flexon, some praying, some just staying, watching that torpedo heading right to them, and they would soon be demolished. But that day, that torpedo got within feet of the flexton. And the eyewitnesses say the top of the torpedo came out of the, of the water, splashed down, and disappeared. And the men were, were astonished. They thought they were, would soon be dead and the torpedo disappeared. And then minutes later, they heard a sound. The torpedo had actually went back down under and went and hit that German U-boat and blew the German U-boat up. And the accounts say that the men did not scream and clap. They stood there in utter disbelief. They tried to explain what happened. Some said, well, the back fin must have fallen off and, the, and, and it, 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 it reversed its course or whatever. But every one of those men knows that they were soon to be dying. But there was a, a miracle that they'd never seen before or since that saved them. That is the story of Gideon. That is the story of our salvation. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? 300 in groups of 100. The lamps, the pitchers, the horns. Gideon blew his horn. Chaos and fear and infighting began. And the Midianites, the Midianite army fled. Look at verse 20. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches. 
and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in its place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against the, all the army, and the army fled as far as Bethshittah toward Zerah, as far as the border. Verse 23, and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after the Midian army. Can we make some applications here and type? Absolutely. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says of this text. It seems obvious Gideon and his company represent the church. The army of the Midianites represent the host of enemies of the church. The earthen pitchers represent two things, the human nature of Christ and also the brokenness of his ministers. The lamps that were in the pitchers represent the gospel of truth and grace. Christ had this treasure in him when on earth, and ministers of the gospel have this treasure in earthen vessels as well. By the breaking of the frail nature of Christ, the light of the gospel shone forth, the world and the grace of God has appeared unto salvation of his people, and the confusion of Satan and his enemies of his church, and don't we know the martyrdom of the ministers and saints of Christ has been made a means of propagating the gospel and confounding the enemies of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and the blowing of the trumpets signifies the preaching of the gospel. This is Gideon's gospel, Jonathan Edwards says. And we can't argue with Edwards. We can't see any truth. We can't say we see no truth in this allegory. Of course not. We agree. So at best, a sermon on Gideon would end here with that is the gospel. But unfortunately, the story of Gideon doesn't end with the pitchers and the blowing of the trumpets. As the Lord would have it, he pursues Midian, first killing the two princes, Oreb and Zeb, sending their heads all through the army. Then they hunt down the kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and Gideon tells his son to kill the kings with a sword. His son is afraid, and so Gideon himself takes the sword, puts it through the two kings. And then we can end the sermon with that mighty man of valor, but not so fast. We still have to come to grips with the rest of chapter 8. Gideon threatening to kill and actually killing his own people in Succoth and Penuel because they dared not fight or give the army bread for fear that the kings of Midian were still alive. Then we see him at the end of the story, our mighty man of valor, asking every man to provide him gold earrings. And Gideon makes an ephod out of those gold earrings, takes it back to his hometown, and the people began worshiping it. Look at verse 27 of chapter 8. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in its city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. 
and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, that's Gideon, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons and his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah. Verse 33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. And the cycle repeats. But what do we learn? What can we learn? What hidden gems can we take away besides these types that were, although good, from Edwards, it seems lacking that that's what we would come away with. As Edwards said in his little uh, soliloquy there about Gideon, and that is the end of Gideon. Well, what can we learn? A couple of things as we close. First, the sovereign God always does what he needs to get his people. And he's done what he's needed to get you. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under a terebinth tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the uh, Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. There is your gospel brothers and sisters, while we were yet sinners. Let's gladly be mighty men and women of valor like Gideon here. So afraid of the Midianites that he wouldn't even thresh wheat in the open. As you are supposed to, God comes sitting underneath a tree waiting for him just as he has waited and found you. Secondly, as we close, we are to this sovereign Lord. We cannot forget his holiness. Look at verse 22 and 23. Then Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord when the sacrifice went up. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. The hidden gem here, as one commentator put it so well, there is nothing amazing about grace without a fear of holiness. It's the holiness of God. And finally, I think the most amazing thing at all, let us end where we began. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the peoples and the prophets whom through faith conquered kingdoms, etc., etc., how do we square 
this explanation of heroes of the faith with what we know about these men? How do we square the fact that we are here voluntarily on a Sunday night in love with the church, in love with each other, in love with the Lord Jesus Christ when we know ourselves? How do we square those? And the answer to both questions is the same. It's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, and may I, may I add, mighty works of valor, which God prepared forehand that we should walk in them. It's of sovereign grace. It remains of sovereign grace. Mighty men and women of valor, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for heroes of the faith. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that those heroes are only like us terribly flawed, terribly sinful, and it's your sovereign grace that saved them just like it's your sovereign grace that saves us. And all we can say is thank you and be thou our vision. Amen.